Yes, you are back here with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's COVID cases are on a slight de- decline. Our seven-day positivity rate is currently at 7.9% as opposed to over 9% last week. One of the COVID casualties to count, City Life. Well, that's what our Longview segment focuses on today. Neil Milner, our contributing editor, joins us. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, cities. Cities. Uh, this is uh, mainly the work of Richard Florida, who's a very well-known urbanologist. We've, I've actually talked about his stuff on the show before. He's been monitoring the effect of COVID on cities, you know, the aftermath. And one of the things that, the, one of the most important things he found is that cities are very resilient, that there were people who le- left the cities during the COVID epidemic. I mean, my kids at the time lived in Brooklyn, not far from the epicenter of that terrible early outbreak in New York City. And some of their friends went to their grandma's houses somewhere else, the summer homes. They've all come back, I think, with with the exception of one. People have come back to the cities. Young people have come back to the cities. The population of Manhattan, for example, is growing again. So that that kind of resilience is back. Even though there's been some really bad hits in terms of commercial areas, People want to come back to the cities. Immigrants have started to come back again because cities offer a certain kind of buzz, a certain kind of opportunity, uh, economic opportunity. We'll get to this in a second. Of course, one of the other effects is that office work is now at home. The increase and undoubtedly a permanent increase in the number of people who work at home, especially in office-related jobs has been terrifically high, which means there's a lot of vacant space. So that's the dilemma, but there are just a couple of other things to, to mention. The same trends about moving that have existed in this country for the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, have resumed. We're not a very mobile, we're much less mobile now than we used to. People used to move a lot more. When they move now, it tends to be uh, local, and the movement amount hasn't really increased. So there's a lot of interesting kind of puzzling things that are going on. The biggest surprise that no one predicted, as Florida, Richard Florida puts it, is the enormous increase in housing. That, you know, you had all of these other things that were going on. The, the movement from uh, into southern cities had increased, all this other stuff. But all of a sudden, for reasons that are still not totally understood, housing prices in areas that never had housing price increases of any size before have hit the roof. The Miami, for example, Phoenix, for example. Phoenix used to be a place where you know, people from Hawaii said, I can always go there and buy a house for, what, $2.42 or whatever, because it was cheap. Those places have gone way up in housing. So that's a little bit of a, a difference. So you have these different kind of patterns going on where people are coming back to the city, they're paying higher prices to live, particularly in cities that had, that had started to grow in the South, but weren't the kind of sexy, um, the, the kind of sexy high-tech cities where people are also coming back, San Francisco, for example. But it made me think about what does this mean for Hawaii? I mean, we've had an exodus for a long time here now. It's increased, and it's not... It, it, it wasn't, it, it was a pre-COVID exodus. Right, the price right. of paradise. Price <laughs> of paradise. Again, the, if you don't want to pay the price, the emotional price, the physical, the fiscal price, y- you leave. You can't move 
locally. That is, you know, if you live in, in if you live in one part of New York City or one part of Milwaukee, you can move to another part and have a kind of a different economic environment. If you move from Hawaii, you're moving 2,500 miles. So that's different. But Hawaii finds itself, Honolulu in particular, in the same position that a number of these cities find themselves in, in terms of the downtown areas, where the downtown areas in a lot of these cities are still attracting people, even though they're not working downtown in person anymore. Their jobs may be still downtown. What drags those people to want to live downtown has a lot to do with the other kind of amenities, <laughs> dating pools, um, restaurants, the other kinds of things that make city life attractive. It'll be interesting to see if that happens here because there's this pretty big movement to repurpose large mm-hmm. office buildings right. downtown. And that started, that. You, you, there's a lot of buzz about that. That's going to happen. What is this area going to look like? Will it have the attractiveness that other cities have to bring people down here? Right, and the developers say, yes, we want to bring uh, more families down to yes. this area. We need things like a grocery store. You know, we've, got the, we've seen the changes with Long's pulling out and Walmart. And yes. so what's going to come back in? What's going to come in? You still have some of the, the really chic restaurants, small like FET, they're, doing, they're, they're holding their own. A lot of other places have closed down. So... I occasionally, if you if you look at salt, the salt area of Kaka'ako, there's a little bit of that kind of stuff there. It's more family-oriented. You don't have a big grocery store right there, but you have the kind of amenities. People walk there. It's not like the other mm-hmm. end, the South Market end, which just strikes me as, I don't know what, but it's not a family area. It's not even clear how local it is. It's just a bunch of high-rises that don't have that same kind of sense of community. It's... It, to me, is it's. I don't know what's going to happen about downtown. What is it that you need? How much of a critical mass is there? Do you need more coffee shops? Do you need a do you need a public school down in there to attract families? Right. Well, we need housing. So you need in, housing. Well, that's right. And if the up. housing is affordable, right. people will live there even if they don't yeah. have these amenities. Will they live where people are frightened to go because they're homeless? Because repurposing is going to take place well before the homeless problem is solved. And will they uh, move into buildings without windows? You yes, know, that's right. Up and yeah, say, well, sure, there's all I, kinds. Now here, you know, it's, I, I, I've said this to other people before. If you look at where people live here, they'll build houses on these weird looking lots because you gotta live somewhere. And if you get an opportunity, so there's all of these things working here, but there certainly is a sense of trying to bring some of that central city density and vibe into downtown Honolulu. Um, It's never quite made it in the past. You know, you had these high rises develop and then it sort of stopped. Whether that's gonna change, whether we'll pick, whether the attractiveness of the resilience of central cities um, and their ability to remake themselves will will occur here is still an open question. Right. I mean, we are seeing lots of properties change hands down down uh, in the downtown area. You know, we're going to have hotels. We're going to have uh, more senior housing. Uh, but whether yeah, people are going to stick around and, and well, we say we're there. going to. Anytime that anytime people talk about senior housing or anytime they talk about housing here, you have to remember. Uh, uh, that things move fairly slowly here, 
And but all of these things are, are in the wings. But senior housing is a different sort of issue than bringing people back for other amenities. A lot about senior housing is they have a safe place with certain kind of amenities nearby, but not the same thing necessarily that, that younger people want. Right. So we're not putting the uh, nail in the coffin for downtown city life. <laughs> well, I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a little bit depressing if you go down there it, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're in the middle of a transition. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> but thank you so much. Neil. You're welcome. Take care. <laughs> well, that was Neil Milner's long view for today. You look for links to those uh, articles he talked about. Check out the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Two observatories atop Mauna Kea on Hawaii Island are scheduled to uh, be decommissioned uh, later this year. This week, the University of Hawaii announced the Hoku Kea Observatory will soon begin that process, which will take about five months to complete. But the first to come down will be the Caltech Submillimeter Observatory, or CSO. Removal work is slated to begin in a few weeks. It's an event that many Big Island residents have been looking forward to since protests against the 30-meter telescope highlighted the observatories atop Mauna Kea that were no longer in use. So what kind of oversight will there be to ensure the removal of the CSO is done in an environmentally and culturally sensitive way? The conversations will also soon be on our talk with Gregory Chun, the executive director of the UH Hilo Center for Mauna Kea Stewardship, and Nahua Gillows, the director of stewardship programs for the center. Can you share when this process begins and what the process will look like? Specific to CSO, there are sort of a number of different aspects to your question. They actually started their decommissioning process back in 2015. But due to a number of delays, both because of funding issues, permitting issues, and of course, the protests, the process didn't get started until you know, the last several years. This is the first decommissioning on Mauna Kea of a facility. And one of the things that has become, we knew it conceptually, but it's become very evident just sort of working through the process, that the process for taking down a facility is as long as it takes to get one built, the permitting process at least, because you have to go through all the same steps, all the same kind of permits and everything that are required to build a facility. So that is proving to be about a two to three year process. We hope that we can, as we get better at it, we'll be able to streamline that. So that's CSO itself in terms of their own process. And of course, you you saw from the press release what the projected timeline is going forward at this point. In terms of the bigger question around decommissioning, the university in its 2022 master plan, for the first time in any of its plans, committed to a maximum of nine facilities in the summit post-2033, which is when our general lease expires. And so CSO had already decided they were going to decommission the UH Hilo Okukea Telescope, which is the next one that's in the queue now, had already decided they were going to decommission. 
So we were involved in a process working with the observatories to figure out the remaining ones to be decommissioned so that we would get to a maximum of nine. Now, decommissioning is also a condition of the TMT permit, but we had made that commitment in 2022, irregardless of whether TMT happened or not. Of course, now how decommissioning is going to occur going forward is pending plans and decisions and policies that the new authority has to determine. So that's how we move forward with decommissioning, you know, it's still somewhat up in the air at this point. I'm glad you clarified that, Greg, because I think there's a good portion of people out there that thinks the decommissioning and the removal is a quick process. You know, take some bulldozers up there and just push it over and then transport the debris down off the mountain. But I think in addition to the permitting process, the deconstruction is also a very sensitive project as well, right? They don't want to just destroy everything in there. I imagine there are some instruments and some other things that are still valuable, still usable, probably worth a lot of money. How much of that process of recovering hardware is part of the decommissioning? Actually, most of the instruments and all of the interior has been emptied. So all of the instruments have been taken and shipped to other locations so that they can be reused and refurbished. The only thing left currently is the mirror and it's very large and the mirror and the secondary mirror will be moved down off of the mountain. That'll be the last thing that will be coming out of the building. And they're expecting that to be at the end of May, beginning of June to move that out. So that's the only last thing inside right now. Other than that, it's a shell and all it is is the exterior shell and you know rooms inside and things like that, but nothing of value. Can you give us an idea of the scale of the mirror? Is it half a football field or something to that effect? Is there a... Oh, a, no. no. How big is it? <laughs> it actually will be put on a big flatbed semi-truck. And it's about, I don't know how exactly how big it is, but it we actually have to shut down our Monica access road to bring it down. It'll be shut down for two days. And then when they move the mirror down to Kauai High from Mauna Kea, to be shipped out, they actually will be shutting the road down because it's so large. It's got a specially made what they call cradle that it'll sit in that tilts so that they can make the turns and get under the wires and different things, but it'll take up most of the highway because it sits on the flatbed and then sticks out. Okay. So it's it's large, but not the size of a football field or anything right. like that. Okay. <laughs> really large. Yeah. It's about the size of a, I would say maybe 30 feet wide. Okay. Okay from the summit down to Kauai High over the course of two days, right? No, oh, it's so. actually, it'll take two days to come off of the summit. So it's one day from the summit down to our Halipohaku area where our visitor information center is. That'll take five hours. And so our goal is to move that down during the day so that the workers uh, who work on the summit during the morning can go up in the morning. And then we'll shut it down to the visitors. They'll bring it down. And then we're hoping to have it at the visitor station and have it parked there on the side. It allow the workers from the summit to come down and also allow visitors to go up and see the sunset since that's one of our most popular times for viewing. And then they will move the next day, they will move it from the visitor station down to the main highway. And they have a place that they're gonna be parking it there on the side of the road, you know, so folks won't be able to see it. And then after they do that, they'll have a two, I think it's a two week window and they will move it in, I think it's two stages 
overnight down to Kauai High. So then it'll be another two days to move down to Kauai High. It's a real slow moving because it's very sensitive instrument. It'll take them five hours to come down five miles. That's Russell, good. I just checked the diameter of the mirror is 34 feet. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry, 30, I thought it was 30. <laughs> okay, good call. That's good to hear. I feel like it demonstrates a sensitivity, not just to the importance of the instrument, but to just everyday life there, right? Making sure that we don't clog up traffic or, or anything like that. Make sure we don't nick something the side of a hill or something on the way down. Exactly. And I, we've been really working hard with CSO to make sure that they're providing a lot of information for the public on when the road coasters would be. We're actually asking them to put out a map to show the different areas when it will be closed. So there'll be a lot more information coming out as we get closer to the move date. And that mirror will be going just in case people are interested, it'll be going to Chile to be reused and refurbished. And I know there's a significant cultural component to this event, especially when it comes to restoring the area beneath and around the side of the telescope. What kind of government and cultural oversight will be included? There's multiple levels. Decommissioning required Caltech to secure a conservation district use permit from DLNR. So in that permit, there are various conditions they have to comply with, including following everything that has been required by State Historic Preservation Division, such as archaeological monitoring, that sort of thing. There are requirements. So DLNR has their own set of conditions. In addition to that, the university, through our management plans, have a process that they have to follow, and that requires certain conditions that are met. So as an example, see as Caltech will have their project team, they have their project team, but once they secure all of their contractors, they'll have the folks actually involved in the deconstruction, dismantling of the facility. But the university through CMS requires them to have an independent construction monitor that has the ability to shut that project down. And in addition to that, CMS, Center for Monica Stewardship, will have our own construction oversight as well. So there's multiple layers of oversight happening as the project is moving on. And once the structure is completely gone, what's the plan for restoring the area? Will it kind of just be returned to its natural state? We're going um, to try to yeah. return it as much to its natural state. You've got to remember that that is the high uh, high alpine it's a summit so there's not much that there won't be any plants no vegetation because in that area there is is pretty much no vegetation but the rocks and the landscape will be restored to look like how it was before so they'll really use the surrounding area the material that we have stockpiled from other projects and really try to make that area blend into the surrounding area to bring it back to its restorative state that was Gregory Chun uh, and Nahua Gillows from the University of Hawaii Hilo Center for Mauna Kea Stewardship. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. And we will have links to more information about the observatory decommissioning on the conversation page of our website later today. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from Hakawone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakawone.com. 
And thanks so much, uh, Casey. And yes, welcome aboard, Cassie. Today on our Manu Minute, the University of Hawaii biology professor Patrick Hart brings us the song of the modest Hawaii creeper. This little bird is hard to spot, but today we hear its call as well as its recently discovered Hawaiian name. The alavi, also known as the Hawaii creeper, is a small, fairly inconspicuous Hawaiian honeycreeper that's often been overlooked compared to many of its showier honeycreeper cousins. Even its Hawaiian name of alavi was only recently rediscovered when a graduate student at UH Hilo found reference to it in an old Hawaiian language newspaper from over a century ago. Only about four and a half inches long, Alavi have mostly olive green or grayish plumage that bird watchers often confuse with other birds like female amakihi. What really sets them apart is their dark grayish colored mask, or lores, that extends from the base of their bill to around their eyes. Also, their bill is much straighter than the slightly curved bill of the amakihi. While they might be hard to find with binoculars, Listening for the very conspicuous, descending trill of the males is often the best way to find an alavi. They're also known as creepers because they forage for food by creeping up and down branches and tree trunks, using their straight bill to probe in the crevices of bark in search of insects to eat. They can often be found in the same tree as one of their close cousins, the bright orange Hawaii Akepa, which is also an insectivore. While these two birds have similar diets, they share their resources by dividing up where they forage on the tree, with the Akepa spending most of their time in the leaves on the tips of branches, and the Alavi mostly on the trunk. Alavi usually build cup nests in the branches of ohia trees, and by May or June, their one or two keiki leave the nest. For the next few months, these keiki noisily follow their parents around the forest begging for food as they are learning to better forage for themselves. This constant begging makes them easy targets for their main predator, the eo, or Hawaiian hawk. To help protect their noisy babies, alavi get together in large mixed species flocks with other native birds in the forest like Akepa, Amakihi, and Akiapolaau, they're also feeding their fledglings around that time. As many as 200 birds can make up these flocks, which can be quite a sight to see as they slowly move among the trees. With only about 12,000 individuals remaining, Alavi are a state and federally listed endangered bird species that is found mainly in Ohia and Koa forests on the island of Hawaii. Like most other Hawaiian honeycreepers, mosquito-transmitted avian malaria is their greatest threat, which is why they're currently only found at high elevations on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa volcanoes, where it's too cold for mosquitoes and the malaria parasites to live. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. 
Since 1939, fostering community values that help to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through educational programs and scientific research. More at HIAudubon.org. Yes, you are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our next story is a fun one. High school rivalries die hard. And we're not just talking football here. This next story, cross disciplines. This week we were alerted that the Iolani Raiders crushed the Punahou Buff and Blue swim team's 29-year consecutive state championship winning streak, which has stood since 1958. And it's all thanks to, drumroll please, <laughs> the math team. That's right. Iolani's math team just won its 30 straight state championship. Uh, you know, uh, this math team has been around since the 1960s, count 55 years, and the math league has grown to include 30 schools across the state. We hear from one of the co-captains, Allison Eto. The win caps her senior year, and she has MIT in her sights next year. Math educator and coach extraordinaire, Mr. Michael Park, sets the stage. At the beginning, you know, we just were we were just trying to beat McKinley High School because they were like the top dog. And so we managed to win one meet and then a few more came. And then after a while, one of our administrators said, oh, our um, wrestling team won eight consecutive wrestling titles. So if you can beat that, uh, I'll, I'll get you lunch. And so we, we managed to do that. And then when we did that, the, the same administrator said, oh, if you can beat St. Louis football record, I'll give you another lunch. It went like that. And after a while, we just never thought about it. We were just trying our best at each meet. And when we got up to like 20-something, then we found out that um, the Punahou tennis team had like 26 consecutive state championships. And I was wondering, wow, what? I wonder what the state record is. So somebody said you can go on to the Hawaii High School Athletics Association site and look it up and all the different sports. So I I went through all the sports, and it turns out that the Punahou Boys Swim Team had 29 consecutive state championships. So, And then we thought, oh, that would be a great goal, and so then we just tried to do it. And we just work hard like we normally do, and it, it happened. In the world of trumping your rivals, how does this pencil out? Because we've got, you know, academics over athletics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it's pretty hard to compare the two. But as far as math league, when I f- first started coaching here, McKinley High School was the dominant team. And before that, it was Kalani High School. And when, the, when Oahu Math League started, it started with just five schools. I believe there were uh, Waianae. Kailua, Kaimuki, St. Louis, and Punahou. It started with those five schools. And Punahou took the titles back in the early days. And then when they allowed more schools in, then Kalani was the dominant team, and then McKinley. And then we started going. But we at the beginning, like I said, we just were, we were just trying to beat McKinley High School because they were so good. And, <laughs> and then... After a few years, then Punahou started to be the team that came at us again. And after that, Kamehameha made a run, too. And then it was Punahou, and we just tried to fend them off by just, you know, working hard and preparing. And like I said, it kind of just worked out. 
And Allison, jump in here. I mean, how does it feel to be, you know, a part of this team that has just knocked off this this winning streak? Yeah, I just feel really lucky to be part of the 30th team, especially as a senior. I feel like I got the timing just right. But yeah, I'm just really proud of the team and how much work all of us put in and yeah, it's just been a great experience well you know i have to say i'm partial to swimming and when it comes to math i'm a fish out of water my daughter however is very good at math um, and she didn't get it from me uh, but you know i just think it's just so amazing when students you know can excel uh and particularly girls right because you you know you we've heard you know boys usually you know run away with math and, and with stem stem classes but the girls are getting up there last year we had two girls as captains right it was allison and emily chen and last year was uh, the first time in a long time that i actually had underclassmen as a team captain usually it's seniors but allison etto and adam inamasu they they were just outstanding so uh, you know i had to make them captains as 11th graders so that's only happened once in the past i think the last time was 1999. so yeah so like we had a meeting before this last meeting and i was telling the students that uh you know the two captains that we have this year they're like among the best that we've ever had so Congratulations to Allison Eto and Adamina Masa. They're, they're just fantastic. Well, Allison, I don't know. Are you going to be a math major? I'm definitely going to go into some kind of STEM. I'm still a little bit undecided. But, yeah, I, math team has really helped me find my love of, of math and just everything STEM. Yeah, you know, can I ask Allison a question? I've never asked her this before, but why do you think we've been so successful all these years? To be honest, I, I just have to credit credit a lot of it to like the system that that you've built mr park like i think coming in my freshman year just seeing all the structure that's built in all the support that we have with the workshops and with the worksheets and all of that just immediately it throws you in and teaches you how to study it teaches you like how to learn the stuff you need to learn and then of course all of the upperclassmen i think we've all gotten to take advantage of the fact that this is such a long tradition of people who are interested in math so having that community i think also is huge or at least it helped me a lot. And so do you have a favorite math class? I don't know, like geometry over algebra? <laughs> I, I think I'd have to give it to Mr. Park's pre-calculus honors class. It's probably everybody at Yolani absolutely, <laughs> absolutely loves the class. Well, Mr. Yeah, that's Park- my favorite class to teach, too. Did you have a favorite uh, math class when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I wasn't uh, that good at math. Almost all the math I learned came after I graduated college, actually. Really? Kind of just turned, yeah. I kind of just got by high school and through college. and But after I got my degree, then I just noticed how beautiful and how useful mathematics is. And then I started studying. It's kind of like the opposite way of doing things, but kind of worked out for me. I did major in math, but I just barely got through it. <laughs> well, how does it feel now that you see, you know, what these kids are doing and, and how they're excelling? Oh, I mean, the kids we have, I mean, they're so fantastic. I mean, they're, first of all, they're, they're talented in math and they have the ganas, the desire to like learn things. And, and you put that together, it's just, it's so good to work with students like that. So that's why I've been doing it for here at Iolani for 35 years because it's just fun working with 
students of this caliber and they're not just smart but they just I mean they like talking with each other and it, oh, it's just fun for me and so they will look back on their high school days and Mr. Park's calculus class. Uh, but do you have a favorite math teacher? Was there somebody that really kind of helped you along uh, in, in your high school days? Um, <laughs> uh, math, like I said, I, I really wasn't good at math, so I don't, I don't know. But there, there are certain teachers that inspired me because... I mean, I, actually, at first, I wanted—I was thinking of being a band teacher because I played tuba in the band, and and then I went to UH. I was in the UH marching band, and I just—that was the most fun part of college. I don't know. I, I guess I'm a late bloomer <laughs> as far as mathematics. Allison, anything else you want to share just about what this experience has done for you and and where it might take you? I have to thank Mr. Park and Yoani in general for just being such an amazing place to discover so much in high school. The opportunities that I've gotten to have, I'm so grateful for them and for all the teachers who have helped me. One of the reasons I guess we're so successful is I think we work harder than anybody else. Like most of the other schools, maybe each student might do dozens of problems to prepare for a meet, but our students, uh, they do hundreds of problems and just the problem solving skills, analytic skills that you know, they develop by doing that. It's, it's just going to help them throughout the rest of their life. So, Mr. Park is like one of the only, is I think the only teacher on campus with chalkboards still. So everyone gets so much joy out of just going up to the board. We work on problems together on the board, like after we finish all of our work. There are some days where we've just gone and covered the board with like dotted lines because there's this trick that you can do with chalk to draw dotted lines. So we just, we have lots of fun in Mr. Park's room. Uh, great memories. Uh, that was Ilani Math uh, Coach Michael Park and Ilani Senior Allison Eto talking about dethroning Punahou for the record for consecutive state championship wins. And we have to note that instead of the winning lunch of pizza today, the math team is upgrading to Zippies. Go Raiders! And that is it for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz, and now back over to Casey and Cassie.